Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. Thank you very much for listening today. Every other week, I interview chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secrets behind the scenes. Today is episode 19. And as usual, you can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. Have you been to Austin? I mean, next time you are there, you cannot miss the big gray-blue glass building in the middle of downtown. It is the Fairmont Hotel. It is the tallest building in the city. It's not surprising, in fact, for the largest luxury hotel in Texas. And today, my guest is the executive chef from the Fairmont Hotel. His name is Andre Natera. And I have to confess that I was a little tense the first time I met Chef Andre Natera, as I knew he wanted to be originally a professional fighter and that he was overseeing more than 100 people and several food and beverage programs at the Fairmont. But Chef Michael Fotege from Olome, you can listen to his interview on the episode 7 of my podcast, told me that he was in fact a great chef and a true gentleman. And indeed, I spent more than two hours with Chef Andre Natera, and this is one of the nicest person I ever met who was open to talk about anything. This episode is a great one, where you will discover what it takes to work at the kitchen of a great luxury hotel. Chef Andre Natera talks to us about collaboration, leadership in the kitchen, and even he's going to open slightly the veil of the dark side of being a chef. Welcome, Chef. I'm really um, excited to have you on uh, Flavors Unknown. I'm excited that you have some time you know, to, to share with us. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me on. So when we talk together, you share with me that as a young adult, uh, you almost made it as a professional fighter. So what compelled you to like, switch and become a chef and not pursue a professional fighter career? You know, it's funny. If you ask me, what do you want to do when you grow up? I, I, still to this day, I, I would probably say I, I wish I was a professional fighter. I, it, was, it was just something that, something that I enjoyed very much as a youth. You know, I, I boxed when I was young, wrestled, did martial arts and various other things. But there was a, there was a certain point where you know I was I was basically at a, a at a life crossroads. The gym where I used to train at, and you know, we used, there, there was a lot of professional fighters in this gym, and uh, the coach that was there came to me. A really, really famous fight coach. His name was Sexon Janjira. He was a world champion in, in Thai style kickboxing, and uh, has a, a you know a good stable of fighters that have made it to the to the UFC and and other kickboxing tournaments. And he asked me. He said, "Hey, I'd like you to turn pro." And that was that was a moment where, you know, around the same time, I was also offered my first head chef position. I, I really had to look at things and, and, and really had to I really had to analyze where I was at in my life and say, what do I want to do? Do I want to be a professional fighter or do I want to do I want to pursue this career of being a chef? So in speaking with other other fighters at the gym, asking them, you know, what do you make? What's your salary like? And keep in mind, this is this is years ago. So what the fighters are making today in, in professional organizations was nothing compared to what it was around this time. And so I was talking to a friend of mine who was fighting in the UFC at the time, and I asked him what he was making. He's like, oh, $6,000 or so a fight. And he had three fights. So I was thinking, oh, geez, that's only about $18,000 <laughs> a year. And I was asking him about benefits. And he says, no, if he gets hurt, he's on his own. And I thought, geez, that's tough. Right, eighteen thousand dollars a year, no benefits. And I was talking to another guy, and he he had broken his leg in a fight, and he was a fireman, and he lost his job over that because the fire department didn't support his fighting career. So at the time, I looked at it and said, okay, I could I could make a lot more money being a head chef, support my family, have medical benefits, and really be a responsible adult. Is what it boiled down to. Is I needed to be a responsible adult. So I decided to pass on the professional fighting career and pursue the uh, the professional chef career. 
So you made a wise decision, you know, I, early I, on. I think so. I, I mean, I was pretty, <laughs> I was pretty good. Looking back on it, I probably wasn't going to be the next uh, Conor McGregor or Oscar De La Hoya, whoever was popular at the time. You know, I, w- I was pretty good. I don't know if I would have been the next superstar, but it was definitely a passion of mine. So how how did the the competitive sport prepare you, you know, for your chef's role? And do you see any similarities between like the sport, lo- you know, like locker room and and you know the kitchen? <laughs> yeah. Uh, definitely. So what's interesting about about gyms is the same thing that's really interesting about about kitchens is that's th- there's a certain social hierarchy inside the locker room or in the in the training room. And that same social hierarchy applies also in the kitchen. So you have the chef at the top um, and then you have his two chefs and, and then the really chef de parties and then the homies after that. Well, the same thing sort of applies that hierarchy in the gym, right? You have the head coach of everyone and everyone's very respectful and kind of walks on eggshells around the head coach. And then he has his professional fighters and his amateur fighters and then the people that are just starting out. So the hierarchy kind of works the same. And the way that it works is, you know, if, if you're giving crap, you only give crap down. You're not allowed to you know, speak negatively up. There's a lot of that same mentality in, in kitchens early on when I first started out. So it was really easy for me to kind of fit in when I first got into kitchens and, and kind of respect that type of atmosphere and, and respect the hierarchy. And back when I started cooking, so you know, keep in mind, I went to culinary school in 1995. So it was, it was a little bit of a different era. Um, and there still was a lot of that locker room style mentality. And, and the style of humor were the same as well. <laughs> I would say so. I would say so. You know, it was a, it was a different time. And, and uh, being, a, being a cook back then, you know, being a young cook, I, I kind of saw like, okay, I, I know how to fall in line. I know how to fall in line in the kitchen because it was the same way I needed to fall in line in the gym. And it was respect the, the hierarchy and, and, you know, just like in, in, the, in the gym, it's, you know, it's yes coach. And in the, in the kitchen, it was we oui chef, same thing. We oui chef, uh-huh. in French. <laughs> so today you oversee like the whole food and beverage programs at the Fairmont Hotel in Austin. So which is like the largest luxury hotel in Texas. And you told me as well, like the largest hotel in Austin. That's correct. For the listener, can you briefly describe the different food and beverage concepts at the Fairmont in Austin? Because it goes from the the raw bar to fine dining experience, you know, at the garrison. So you have a whole spectrum of offers when it comes to food and drinks. Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting concept. So the first one that I'll, I'll talk about is review. So review is our multi dining concept, which has which has a, an eclectic menu where you could order off our Asian kitchen, you could order out of our Italian kitchen. We have a raw bar, we have a dessert station, and so in our Italian kitchen, you know, we're making pizzas from scratch, making our pastas from scratch. In our Asian kitchen, we're serving you know, a couple of different varieties of ramen, you know, some different noodle bowls, Taiwanese beef noodle, udon noodles, fried rice, okonomiyaki. And then, of course, we have the raw bar where we have shellfish towers and, and seafood dishes. And then we have, you could order French crepes and things like that. So that, that's all one restaurant. So, and it's a, it's a dynamic restaurant where it's great for the hotel traveler you know, and for the convention business that people that come in and say, I don't know what to eat and I'm in the mood for Asian and I'm in the mood for Italian. Well, we could both agree to kind of meet in the middle and, and, and get what we want out of this restaurant. So review kind of covers all of that. And behind review, so it's uh, like Inception, right? So restaurant within a restaurant. You have Garrison. Garrison is our fine dining restaurant, which really is the, the whole menu concept is built around fire. So we have a, a wood burning grill. We have a smoker. And many of the menu items are designed around those flavors. So everything from grilled bread with an avocado butter to you know, to grilled meats, grilled seafood, everything kind of has an element of either smoke or char or grill or something like that. So that that's Garrison, which is a you know phenomenal dining experience within the hotel. It's a little bit smaller, a little bit more exclusive. We also have Fulton, which is our lobby bar, um, where we focus on small bites and a really creative cocktail program. Uh, we have Good Things, which is our grab and go coffee shop. Of course, we have in room dining. Our in room dining is uh, unique, where you know um, you're staying in the hotel. And uh, maybe you want to spoil yourself, obviously order breakfast in bed, and then you have the chef come up and serve you caviar and truffles because we have caviar and truffles on our breakfast menu as well. So that's fun. So if, if someone wants to get away for the weekend and have, you know, enjoy some perfectly soft scrambled eggs with shaved black truffles, we could do that. And then on our seventh floor, we have Rules and Regs, which is a, our bar on the seventh floor, which really focuses more around uh, interior Mexican flavors. So 
it's fun for me as a chef because I have a creative outlet, whether we're talking Latin American cuisine, whether we're talking high end, whether we're talking Asian or Italian or, you know, raw seafood. I, I have my hand in a lot of different things, which keeps me, keeps me engaged and interested in, and it keeps me creative. So we'll, we'll come back to the creative approach, you know, uh, covering all those platforms that you have. But thinking about, you know, the people listening and everyone knows very well chefs at restaurants and celebrity chefs on TV. I don't think that people know a lot about chefs working at a hotel like yourself. So what would you say are like the top, uh, let's say just focus on three, because I'm sure there's a lot, but the top three main differences between being a chef at a restaurant versus a chef at a luxury hotel like the Fairmont in Austin? Well, for one thing, and again, this isn't, this isn't a, a one-size-fits-all answer. Of course, there's always going to be exceptions to the rules on both ends, right? But for the most part, if you're the chef of the restaurant, you oversee your menu, you know, for the sake of conversation, 15 items. And th those are the, those 15 items, you know, you, you put your heart and soul into and you could work, you could work through them. But one, what you get is you get really good at these 15 or so items. And in a hotel, there's a lot more moving parts. So you might, what you're exposed to is it's an exponential amount more of different types of food items that you're exposed to. Because one day you're making Mexican food, the next day you're making barbecue, and the next day you're making Thai food. In addition to that, the different, the different concepts that you may have in restaurants and things like that. So you're, you're just exposed to a lot more, I would say, in a hotel than you are in the restaurant. And of course, there's always exceptions to the rule. Another big difference, I would say, between hotels and, and restaurants is when I worked in a restaurant, you know, we ended up closing our restaurant, which was, you know, it was a traumatic experience. And I think when you work in a hotel, you, you, you have a little bit of comfort as a chef knowing that the doors are not going to close, right? So there is a little bit more security in the job. The pay is a little bit better. The benefits are a little bit better. Or, you know, in some, some places, in some restaurants, the benefits don't exist. I would say those are probably some of the bigger aspects, the bigger differences in working from a hotel to a, a restaurant. But I will say on the flip side, you know, some of the negative aspects of working in a hotel is if you're the type of chef that likes to run your operation with 100% authority and the final call, it's not necessarily that way in a hotel. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people with a vested interest in the decisions that are made, right? Everything from sales department to you know, a catering department to, you know, from the culinary team as well. So it's more of a collaborative effort. Of course, ultimately, it's my say on, on whatever sided on the food, but I do take a lot of other factors in when making the decision. But, you know, if you look back, let's say 25 years or so ago, young people wanted to work in hotels. And you explained to me when we met that it was, you know, and you can talk about this uh, further. But it was really because of the image that most of the European chefs were working at hotels. So there was a big influence there. And then the trends shifted in wanting that to be a chef at a private restaurant. Why? So when I went to culinary school, and even before I went to culinary school, and it was, it was part of the influence that I had, we didn't really have the Food Network. It didn't exist. And the cookbooks back then were not necessarily like the cookbooks are now. You know, you didn't have so many chefs pumping out cookbooks. The cookbooks were really recipe books with a couple of pictures, where now they're picture books with a couple of recipes or <laughs> I, I, idea books, right? So the one television program that everyone really turns to was this TV show called Great Chefs of the World or Great Chefs of America or US. I don't remember what it was called. But when you would watch these shows, right, as a young cook, you would say, okay, these are the people that I want to work for because these are the people on TV. And these people on, on this television program were you know, the chef at the Waldorf Astoria or, you know, the chef of some other luxury hotel in Beverly Hills or this, the chef of some, you know, some inn in France or something like that, right? So you always saw these hotel chefs or these chefs in country clubs doing these demos of this interesting food. So when you went to culinary school, a lot, all your instructors, for the most part, came from hotels and country clubs and would talk them up. And then you watch the TV and the narrative on TV is you want to be a great chef because that, that was the title of the show, Great Chefs you want to be a great chef, you work in these great hotels. So what the culinary schools were pumping out at that point in time was, if you want to be a great chef, go work in a great hotel. So everyone in culinary school, it was the exact opposite back then. When, when people would talk, where are you going to go work after graduation? It was, I'm going to go work at this hotel, or I'm going to go work at that hotel. And the people that worked in restaurants were kind of looked upon as, 
uh, why would you go work at a restaurant? Because it's probably an American chef in the restaurant where you could go work under a German or an Austrian or a French chef in a hotel or a country club where you could really learn more, right? So a couple of years later, Food Network comes out, Emerald's on there, and then you start to see this explosion of the American chef. Cookbooks start to evolve. The shift was gradual, but I would say by 2008, 2010, no one was really wanting to work in hotels as much as they wanted to work in restaurants. So it was interesting for me to see that shift happen where everyone wanted to work in a hotel to now everyone wants to work in a restaurant. I think a lot of that had to do with you know the influence of, of the Food Network and the media and, and shows like Top Chef and whatnot coming from these great restaurants. And what you saw was you kind of saw the end of an era of the, of the great hotel chef, these great European chefs that were working in hotels. So there was a changing of the guard. And, you know, quite honestly, what you saw was the emergence of the American chef in these hotels. And to be honest with you, maybe that is why the hotels struggled for a bit with the reputation is because the American chefs probably hadn't finished their training. They probably weren't ready to run the kitchens the way the, the European chefs had at the time. So there was a bit of a lag. Meanwhile, the restaurants seem to have figured it out. Now I think things are starting to shift a little bit, especially when you think about the expenses that it takes to operate your own restaurant, as opposed to in a hotel. You know, it, it, it is expensive to operate a restaurant in a hotel. It's just a different dynamic because the hotel is supported by rooms revenue. So it's just a different way to look at things. And I, I think what we're trying to do here is bring back that level of professionalism and that, that level of cuisine back to hotels. You know, to the young people that are at, in culinary school at the moment, and they are looking at their future and, you know, where it could be in hotel and in restaurants. So what advice can you give, you know, to a young person interested in becoming a chef and maybe, you know, becoming a chef at a hotel? It's really easy to think short term, really easy to think short term and get and get the reward now. I would ask young people to just think a little bit bigger and think, you know, where do you want to be in your career, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now? Are you going to have a family? Are you going to have children? Are you looking for balance of life? You know, are you, are you looking to make more money? And, and a lot of these, a lot of these questions, it's better off answering early in your career, because if you spend the majority of your career in a, in a, in a restaurant, and then one day you want to transition to a hotel because of benefits, or you want to make a little bit more money or whatever the case may be, sometimes it's a little bit difficult to make that transition. So I, I would, to each their own, maybe one day you want to own your own restaurant. You're never going to learn about operating your own restaurant by working in a hotel. You'll learn some things, but you won't learn everything. However, you'll never learn about operating a hotel if you've only worked in restaurants. So I would say getting a good mix of experience and understanding the differences between the two is important. But I would say the most important thing is to not limit yourself and to understand there may be a day in the future where maybe a couple of restaurants have closed on you or you, you know you've been shorted a couple of paychecks or whatever the case may be or you have you you have you need insurance or you have kids the hotel might be the right answer for you and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be frowned upon to work in a hotel when you're trying to support yourself or support your family because quite honestly that's why we're all in this business right i mean we're in it for passion but at the end of the day it's 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 a means of how we live Let's go back a little bit now to your to a creative process. So you, you have this wide the number of platforms at the Fairmont in, in Austin. So I'm, I'm curious, how do you go about creating dishes, you know, for such a diverse menus that you have from the high-end table restaurant to the Italian and the Asian ones? And, you know, where is your inspiration coming from for, you know, all those, all those platforms that you have? Well, we have, we have a, a really large and talented team. So I would say the first, first and foremost, it's collaboration. There's a lot of people that have great ideas and we're always discussing food and bouncing ideas off each other. You know, someone from Garrison could be talking to someone in review and get inspiration that way or, or whatever. But I would say that probably first and foremost, it's the collaborative amongst the, the different chefs that work here. Everyone's always spinning ideas. Me personally, how I come up with my ideas is, is really, I like to be alone. I like to think. I like to put on some classical music, drink some green tea, zone out, and then I like to write. And then from there, that's where the ideas start to flow. So for me, and everyone has a different creative process, but for me, the creative process is, is a lot of times done in isolation. But a lot of it, a lot of that, a lot of the ideas that, that spring, spring forth from isolation come from collaborative discussions that I've had prior. And then when you generate those ideas, 
you know, on your own. Then after that, you're going back to uh, like your team and then, you know, share this and they do the same with their own ideas. So that's the whole collaborative approach as well, continuing. Absolutely. So a lot of a lot of the chefs, I mean, before I took this call, I was downstairs tasting some Thai food with my chef de cuisine that he brought forward and say, hey, what do you think of these flavors? It has this fish sauce, caramel and fresh herbs. And we're discussing it, and it's, and it's great. It's delicious. Can we add a little bit more heat, or can we add a little bit, you know, some texture and add some some uh, roasted peanuts on top, or something like that? So there's always something for me to try. There's always someone working on a dish, and then it gets put in front of me. You know, I put my opinion on it. The chef will take it back, work on it a little bit more, or it might be the other way around. I might get an idea, work on a dish, and then maybe bring my chef de cuisine or my executive sous chef over and say, hey, what do you think about this? I wouldn't say that there's a, a straight line on how we create the dishes. Sometimes it's from a discussion. Sometimes it's just from something that we tasted. But in, in this operation where we have so many moving parts, in a day, I'm trying three or four new dishes every day. I mean, is the original step coming from like the produce that you guys are working on and linked to like the local or let's say the seasonal ingredients available? It doesn't come from like a memory. It doesn't come from something that you have read on a, a cooking book or... An, you know, so what's what's the first step for you? Well, it depends on the restaurant. So, like in in Garrison, you know, we have we have our top line objectives, right? So there there should be an element of smoke. There should be there, there should be some finesse in the technique, and and you know, so we want to start there. And then there it should be seasonal. It should make sense to what we're doing. So when the seasons change and we update our menu, obviously we're going to incorporate you know seasonal ingredients and what can we get from local farms and how can we utilize the whole plant or the whole animal make sure that that we really reduce the amount of waste that we have in a specific dish. So in Garrison, I would say it's more of the traditional approach, right? So we look at the season, uh, we look at what's available locally, and then we look at you know the concept and make sure that it fits. But in review, it's completely different because the creative process in review might not be driven as much seasonally because if, if we're speaking of Italian food, the idea comes from what's the tradition? What's the tradition of this dish? Where does this pizza come from? Or where does this pasta come from? Where does the shape come from? So we're looking more uh, for our for our inspiration in that restaurant based on on tradition. Same thing with the Asian the Asian dishes that we do, right? So when we look at our ramen, we have three types of ramen on the menu that are all based off a tokotsu broth. So when we make the broth and we make the ramen, and we have the the shio, the shoyu, and a miso ramen, all based off a tonkatsu broth. But I wouldn't say that's necessarily a, a seasonal dish, right? It's it's ramen and it's made in its traditional style. So in some cases, it's a very creative process and let's put our personality in the dish. And in other cases, it's let's respect the tradition of this type of cuisine. So this hotel, you know, opened the doors a little more than a year now, correct? Mm -hmm. And then so when we met uh, not too long ago, it told me an interesting story when you started and about the challenge you guys faced at the time because the hotel you know were opening a bit you know like late it was a little bit delayed you had a freshly formed team you know that you just hired and uh, you told me a story how you went about working you know on the first menu so i would like you to tell us this story now we were supposed to open and, and prior to opening there was just uh, there was just two chefs that were hired as myself and, and atticus who's my right hand over here and we wrote all the menus we wrote all the menus for garrison review bar room service and we were ready to go so when the when the first eight chefs started it was a mad sprint because we needed to open up and we needed to we had we didn't have a kitchen right so we're, we're working out of a, an office building and we had nowhere to cook but we needed to create these recipes because at this point there were just ideas on a piece of paper what we did was we rented an airbnb you know someone was crazy enough to let us make all the dishes in their house. So we went through about 500 dishes, right? When you think about the hotel and all the dishes that we had to create, and many of them never made it on the menu. So for about a month and a half, we had to create these 500 dishes, document the recipes, take pictures. And you had eight chefs basically working over a uh, four burner stove. Wow. Creating, you know, That's insane. <laughs> you know, about about 20 dishes a day, taking photos, writing down the recipes, tasting, and then going back to the drawing board when we needed to. And so this was an early collaboration. So we had, you know, the uh, Jason Purcell, who's our chef of Garrison, our chef of review, Matthew Schaefer at the time, Atticus, our banquet chef, our in-room dining chef, our pastry chef. 
and we're, we're all working out of this house creating dishes. And the influence was amazing because a lot of the chefs had, had different uh, walks of life. One chef came from the Thomas Keller restaurant group. Another chef came from La Bernadette. Another guy came from the Danielle system. So when everyone was coming together and we're talking pasta, for example, one chef is saying, oh, this is how we made it at TKRG. This is another guy saying, this is how we made it at La Bernadette. Oh, this is how we made it at Danielle. Or this is how I made it at my restaurant. And then we'd all come together and say, okay, this is the best way that we think it's to be made here. And what ended up, a lot of the recipes were just this amalgamation of different ideas and different iterations of the dish before we said, okay, that's it. That's perfect. That's the best way that we could execute it for our particular operation. So a little over a month later and 500 dishes later, we're ready to go. We're ready to open. There was a delay. So the med sprint wasn't as, uh, as, as needed as much as, as we went. But, but I'll tell you what, it was, it was a creative time. In, in my life that I would say it, w- it was an invaluable experience, not only for me, but all the other chefs that uh, were a part of that creative process. Exactly. If you, if you could think back when you could make 500 dishes with, with your closest friend, it was an amazing And maybe time. you just gave another idea for Airbnb. Yeah. You know, to expand their business. <laughs> yeah. Use it as a test kitchen. Exactly. So when you're looking back at your career in the hotel, restaurant before and so on, so what are you the most proud of? I think what I'm most proud of as a, as a chef is the people that I've worked under me, the different people that, uh, that I've seen come up from a cook right out of culinary school, or maybe even a cook with no culinary school that maybe grows into a sous chef position or an executive chef position or a chef de cuisine position. I would say that, that really the investment in the people and mentoring people uh, and seeing them grow is probably what I'm most proud of. I'm most proud of the people that I've worked with. There's no personal accomplishment that I have that I would say is greater than the accomplishment in investing in people. It's probably been, you know, the greatest reward in my career. And you are as well a mentor, correct? Yes. Like part, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a, a member of uh, the Mentor BKB organization, which, which really is a big supporter of the Bocuse Dior Foundation. And, and, you know, they select a competitor every two years to go to the Bocuse Dior and they help train them and find them and, and support them. But Mentor also helps chefs finding culinary grants to go work in, in great restaurants around the world. And it brings chefs together for these collaborative events. And I mean, it's, it's a really fantastic organization that definitely is something that, that I'm very proud to be a part of with some other great, amazing chefs. It's definitely something that if, if people aren't aware, should definitely look into. So who are the chefs that you, are, that you look up to and, and why? Uh, there's a lot of chefs that I look up to, but I would say, you know, I would say the chef that I admire the most is probably, you know, Thomas Keller, just for what he's been able to do as a professional with his career, with his legacy. Really what impresses me the most about him is the amount of chefs that have kind of come from his lineage. You know, when you think about all the other great Michelin three-star chefs that have worked under him, or, you know, Matthew Peters being the first American to win the, the Bocuse d'Or, Philip Tessier, who won silver, or, you know, the, the, what Grand Ackets has created. I'm a restaurant empire. We I had on the show, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. So Philippe you could see him. Yeah. So you could, you could trace a lot of these chefs back to Thomas Keller. And as far as an American chef goes, I can't think of another one that has produced as many great chefs as Thomas Keller. And I think that's why I admire him the most. As I said, what makes me most proud is the, the chefs that have worked under me. So I think that's why, uh, that's why I admire him very much. Uh, you, you talk to me about, you know, other people, you know, for their, maybe their creativity. I think that um, you mentioned like Rene Redzepi as well. I would say for sure. If you, if you think about uh, a forward-thinking chef, I would say that Rene Redzepi definitely is someone that definitely, I, I like to read everything that he puts out, every cookbook. You know, I was just wrapping up reading his uh, fermentation book that he just put out. He's very creative. He's definitely started a lot of movements for today's chef, everything from foraging to, you know, what he talks about time and place to his fermentation projects that he's doing to moving his restaurant around the world and doing a Noma pop-up in Australia or Mexico. So I definitely think he's on the forefront. And I would say I'm very curious to see what his legacy will be, because obviously, you know, I think he's, he's the current generation's Thomas Keller, I would say. And anyone in uh, Texas? Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, you know, the chef that I admire most in Texas is probably Dean Farring at the, you know, the chef of Farring's at the Ritz Carlton, just uh, he, he's just such a down-to-earth chef, complete gentleman. 
but really understands the marketing and business aspect of it and, and really understands his customer. And I would say, you know, from a, from a chef that gets it and from a chef that really has the complete package from marketing to, to mentorship to business savvy and just being a shrewd businessman, I, I think Dean Faring is probably the guy that I would say I admire most here in Texas. So you are managing more than 100 people at the Fairmont Hotel. How would you describe your leadership style? It's evolved over time. Um, yeah. and I, <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that, that now, if, if you've ever seen the movie Goodfellas, you'll remember Polly. And, and there's, a, there's a scene when they're talking about Polly and Goodfellas and you know, Polly's whispering in people's ear. And it's just kind of, it's kind of this messenger relaying. And I would say that now my leadership style is probably like that. I you know, kind of talk to my executive sous chef or my chef de cuisine. I'll whisper in their ears and, the, and they'll take it from there. But, but I would say when, when, someone, when I see a young cook in the kitchen, I really like to spend time with them and really talk to them and explain things to them and, and coach them through. So the way that I, I work with someone that's brand new in the kitchen sometimes is different than how I work with someone that's very experienced in the kitchen. I just hold them maybe to a different standard. Um, a younger person, I want to make sure that, that they really understand the lesson because I forget that they potentially don't know much about, about this business or this industry. So you said it evolved over time. So do you want to uh, mention a little bit, you know, how it was before? Yeah. So I would say that early on in my career, most of the chefs that I worked under, and, and it was just a matter of, of, of time. This is for the most part, and I, and I hate to use this excuse and say, well, that's just the way kitchens were. But the truth is, is that every kitchen that I was in and every kitchen that I was a part of, that's the way they were. They were explosive. The chef was, was angry. The chef was hard on everyone. The, you know, I saw things. I saw physical abuse in the kitchen or yelling or verbal abuse. It was, it was very common. And so when that's all you know and that's all that's accepted, I would say early on in my career, that I would say that I probably, I probably could have been a better manager with that because I would say that maybe, maybe I was that way as well. And so as, I, as time evolved and as I started to really see the type of results I was getting, there was, there was, I had an epiphany moment. moment. And that was one of my sous chefs, female. She had a friend coming into the restaurant that she was cooking for. I, I backed off and I was letting her cook for her friend. And I was watching her run around the kitchen and yell at everyone, oh, you're burning my sauce or, hey, you know, you're not cooking my chicken correctly. And, and she's, just, she's just being very aggressive. And as I'm watching this, I'm scared. I'm intimidated. I'm like, oh, man, this is, this is very uncomfortable for me to watch, right? And what was interesting about the whole thing is this person was one of the sweetest people I knew. And so it was interesting for me to see how they had turned this corner and they were this sweet, innocent chef was now this tyrant. And I'm watching it go down. And I thought to myself, ah, that's how I am. And, and so the light, the light bulb went off because she wasn't that way. She was that way because that's probably how I was. But I was completely, uh, completely oblivious to my, own, to my own behavior, right? I wasn't really self-aware which that was really the beginning of me understanding who I was and what I needed to become to evolve myself and to evolve as a chef in this industry. So this is the moment where you reconcile the idea of you, the chef, and you, the Andre, you know, the person, correct? Yeah, I would say that there was, there was definitely, um, you know, a, 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 a duality going on here because Andre, the person, is this very happy-go-lucky, friendly man that, that would... Uh, help anyone out when they're in a time of need. However, Andre the chef was maybe a little bit more serious, a little bit more stern, a lot more disciplined, and definitely had zero tolerance for mistakes. And so people that knew me as a chef would say, wow, he's a really hard chef. And then people that knew me as a person would say, what are you talking about? He's the nicest guy we know. And I, and I realized that there was, there was a point where I had to find some sort of compromise between the two. I had, to, I had to understand that Andre the chef and Andre the person could be, could be one and the same. And it, and it took some time for me to really evolve into this type of chef and realizing that in order for me to get better results, I had to look back on my career and say, okay, why was I more successful in certain places than other places? And what it really boiled down to was the places where I was happier in my job were the places that I was more successful. So I realized that there was a direct correlation with my attitude and my, my view on things and my leadership style to the results that we were given. It had nothing to do with my culinary abilities. And that's when it, I really realized that I needed to reconcile these two aspects of my personality. 
But at the same time, discipline is very important in the kitchen, and especially when you are running, you know, this huge, you know, organization that you have under you. So why discipline is, you know, so important and what does it bring? I'll tell you why discipline is important, but I think first it's important that we understand the context in which we use the word discipline, because the word discipline sometimes can mean that you're in trouble. So we're going to discipline this person because they're not, they're not doing something the way we want them to do it. Another way to use the word discipline is to say, I have the discipline to work out every day. You're not in trouble, right? But you have the discipline to do something because it's something that's going to yield a better result, right? So understanding the difference, and this was something that I had to understand, understanding the difference between discipline as punishment and discipline as a means to deliver a result because it's the right thing. I had to understand that in order to have a disciplined kitchen, it wasn't that I had to be mean to anyone. It was just that I had to expect consistency from everyone in the most minute detail. And that's really where I understood the process of discipline is, is, is turning down the noise so you could really focus on what's important. So the discipline to do something consistently, whether that was folding their towels a certain way or answering a question a certain way or putting their knife a certain place or cutting chives a certain way. There had to be a certain amount of discipline in the way that we do things. And when things aren't done with that discipline in mind, they get corrected. But they don't have to be corrected in a manner which is belittling to the person. It, it, they, they're corrected in a way of, that's not how we do it. This is how we do it. And here's why we do it this way. And after a while, the person understands. So you mentioned answering the question in a certain way. And when I was with you and uh, you very kindly gave me the whole tour of like the behind the scene tour at the Fairmont was very impressive. So thank you for doing this. I noticed that every member of your personal that we were meeting, when you asked there the questions, you know, and greeting them and how they were doing, they all had the same positive attitude and, and phrase when they answer. Can you please share with us the phrase they said and, and how is it part of uh, this, you know, your philosophy? Whenever we come and go here at work, we always shake in and we shake out. You know, we, we start the day as a professional, we end the day as a professional. So every cook that comes into the kitchen or anybody that comes into the kitchen for that matter, every cook is going to shake their hand. So we, we start out that way. And when the question is asked, how are you? The response is always awake and ready. And the reason that is, is because it's very easy to get lost in what's happening outside of work. And, and, it's, and we, all ha we all have troubles and we all have things going on. But when we're at work, what we need to do is we need to refocus on what we're doing. So the answer of awake and ready to me and to all the chefs in there, really what it's saying is we're present, we're focused and we're ready for service or we're ready for whatever, whatever challenges come at us today in the operation. And we're here, we're present versus, Oh, today, you know, I had a flat tire and, and you know, my cat is, you know, got lost or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. So it, it just trains the cooks to kind of turn down that noise a little bit and allows them to focus a lot more on the task at hand. So, so the answer is awake and ready. Someone asks you, how are you today? Everyone says awake and ready. I was in fact ready when, you know, we started like the discussion for this podcast and I was expecting you to ask me how I was doing and I was ready to answer awake <laughs> and ready, chef. <laughs> but it didn't happen. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm no, so no, it's fine. What are the best parts of being a chef? You know, I would say the the well, one, you get to have delicious food all the time. So that that's that, that's always probably the, the, the biggest part. But I would say there's a lot of great parts. But I would say right now in my career, it's about leadership, it's about mentorship, it's about uh, developing others. That's a great part of being a chef. But the other great part, because there's there's times when I don't want to be a leader. There's times when I don't want to be a mentor and maybe I just want to stand at a cutting board and chop all day or I want to skim stock or, you know, one of these menial tasks that, you know, I've done for many years throughout my career. And what's great about those tasks is it almost puts you in this meditative state. You know, I could just sit there and chop onions for a few hours and I don't have to think about anything. And for me, that's a good way for me to relax. And that's a good way for me to unwind is just to do this, re these repetitive tasks. That, that's something that I like to do to unwind a little bit. But I think the greatest thing is just, you know, being creative and, and working with lots of different people and, and really having an impact on people's lives. 
for the people that are listening, you know, we know that there is as well a dark side, you know, of being a chef. Uh, it's a tough job. You know, it's not solely about the creativity and the glamour, you know, that you see on TV. There's long hours, you know, there's no weekends. It's a difficult life and work balance. You can have bad reviews, you know, from food critics and multiple types of addictions, you know. A lot of uh, chefs today, you know, share their life experience. So you genuinely shared with me, you know, when we met a challenging moment in your career. And these moments, you know, are a reality and part of the life of being a chef. So I don't want you to go into too much details, but I think it will be interesting for the people listening and maybe people that are in culinary school or that are young chefs. And I would love if you could talk to us about them and how you overcame them. I think how it all started was with a little bit of fame. You know, <laughs> it's the classic story that you that you hear so much is is you get to you get a little bit of accolades and then you start to believe what's being written about you, and then you associate your identity with the press that you're getting or or you know the accolades that you receive. What started to happen to me is which something that I I never thought would happen. I always thought that that I was definitely separate from Andre the chef. I, I, I definitely thought Andre and Andre the chef are two different people. But I was I was involved in this restaurant, and as we got, uh, you know, we got a bad review, which affected the restaurant, which affected the people that worked there. So we had to change concepts, and and little by little, things just kept getting worse and worse uh, with the, with the press and what was being written. It, it started to affect all the other areas of my life, and and so. I couldn't disassociate what was being written with who I was. And so eventually these restaurants closed. It was a big blow to my ego. It was, it was a big blow to, uh, you know, to my friends and my family. And, and I went through, you know, I went, I went through some dark times because of it. It took me some time. So that, that's one of the reasons why I moved to Austin. I just kind of wanted to get away from Dallas and food critics and for lack of a better term, stick my head in the sand and, and just get back to, to work without having to worry about the pressure of, of what the media is writing about you. Because I, I was still very much attached to the idea of me and the person that's being written about. But it took me a minute to really understand that if I had a hundred different people write about me, I would have a hundred different perspectives on who I am. But the fact of the matter is none of those perspectives are who I am. It's who they think I am. And so I had to take a step back and realize that what is being written, good, bad, or indifferent is not me. It's their perception of me or their perception of the product. It took me a moment. But I would say it was it was very freeing to understand that that I was more than just the chef, that the chef was just what I did, but it wasn't who I am. After a few years of, of you know, just kind of being upset about whether it was a food critic or a bad review, I was able to kind of put that behind me and move forward. And, and it was difficult. I, I, I thought it would be a lot easier. You know, I, I may have judged other people harshly when they went through a hard time, not understanding why they got so wrapped up in what was written. but when when it was uh, staring at me in the face, I had to look at it and say, wow, it's a lot harder than I thought it was to deal with this pressure. So I was glad I went through it because I was able to understand who I was and able to reconcile those two different aspects of my personality. But I think, I mean, thank you for, for sharing, but I think it's very important as well for, you know, people that are out there that are food critics or I have to say like everyone seems to be a food critic now with all the technology that we have and everyone is able to write a review. But, you know, sometimes that has consequences and impact uh, not only on the chef, but as well on the whole ecosystems, you know, of the restaurants, because you are not the only one at the restaurant. There's people working there. They are family attached to it. I think it's very, very important to understand that before writing anything, you know, think about, you know, the consequences of your actions. I agree. And, and you have to think about the amount of money that, that's invested into a place. If a restaurant costs a little bit over a million dollars to open. That's a big financial investment. When you think about all the people that are employed there and you know, maybe they have two or three dependents, this is a big impact. Sometimes you're talking hundreds of people that are impacted by a bad review. And sometimes those bad reviews have an agenda. Maybe they're just being written about because they don't like a particular person or maybe there's a critic feud or, or maybe it's just not the popular opinion or maybe they're trying to spin a certain narrative a certain way to make something else more trendy. So there's a lot of different reasons, but the impact that, that this has on people's lives, I think, is something that's not discussed enough. And, and, you know, when we talk about having a positive mental outlook and, you know, chefs that, you know, have uh, mental health issues, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, abusing substances or whatnot, a lot of this is based upon the pressures that one has 
to support all these people that are tied to the restaurant, whether it's investors, whether it's whether it's their own money, whether it's the families of others who are their employees. There's there's a lot of pressure on a chef to perform. And I'm not sure people recognize that. I think people just go in and say, I was too salty. I'll never go back there and not not understanding that that we're dealing with people that we're dealing that we're, we're going to have mistakes in restaurants and, and things aren't always going to come out perfectly. And if it's so salty, you know, it's just easy to give a feedback, you know, to the waiter or, or, or to the chef and, and that's it and move on. Right. And not, not understanding that some of this negative feedback, what are the consequences that it has on certain people, which, you know, in some places they could, they could afford the negative feedback and maybe they thrive off of it, but other places it makes the doors close and people lose jobs. So I, I think there has to be a little bit more responsibility with this and, and understanding the larger, the larger consequences that go in with, with negative reviews, whether it's Yelp or local critics. Sure. So thank you, Chef, for, for sharing this with us. Uh, now I, let's, let's go into like a more light you know, discussion. And uh, I always ask you know, the, the chef to come up with um, you know, a suggestion around like maybe a common ingredients and, and give an inspiration and a suggestion for the, the home cook. So we talked about of, uh, selecting eggplants. There was a lot of interesting dishes that I tasted you know, on your menu that were you know, the, the chance to, to come to Austin. So what, what would you suggest, you know, for people, how they can prepare, you know, eggplants at home with a, a creative twist? The way we prepare our eggplants here is we confit them, some oil, and then, and then we grill them. I really like the technique of confiting them in some sort of fat. Now, this is where you could get creative. So if, if you have the technique of, of you know, confiting the eggplant in fat, well, then you could change your medium up. So you could use olive oil or you could use, you know, a neutral oil, but you could also use duck fat. You could use tallow, beef tallow. You could maybe use a chicken schmaltz um, to confit your eggplant so you could impart some of that meaty flavor. And I, so to me, this is kind of where the ideas are coming from right now. And then after it's confit, you know, and of course you could add your aromats in there. So, you know, bay leaves or citrus or whatever the case may be. And then I would take that. And then if you don't have a, a grill, we have a wood burning grill. So I, I take the eggplants and I put it on the grill, but you know, during the summer or spring, great for barbecuing. But maybe you could put that in a in a cast iron pan and get some caramelization on there, and then just serving it with a, a you know a beautiful sauce. In our case here, we um, we do a, a romesco sauce, but you know a, a salsa verde or something like that, or a chimichurri would lend itself very well to that that grilled smoky charred eggplant after, and really creamy on the inside with um, you know because it's been confit in some fat. That, that's what I would do with it. So when you are saying confit, so that means that you are really letting like the eggplant cook very slowly into like the different fats that you are you you mentioned, correct? Yeah, so I would say probably the basic technique would be to submerge the eggplant in some form of fat. That would be your cooking medium. So duck fat, olive oil, beef tallow doesn't doesn't matter. And then and then maybe uh, cook it slowly in the oven at low temperature until it's very very soft. Maybe a little bit more than an hour. Okay, so we don't count the calories for that dish, correct? No. <laughs> <laughs> we indulge. <laughs> yes. That's what we do. Okay, good. So I, I was looking at the time and I'm like, wow, we, we talked like uh, for more than 50 minutes already. So I would like to uh, finish the, the interview with a series of rapid fire questions. So where do you eat where you are off the clock and, and you are not at home? And of course, not in any of the restaurants at the Fairmont. Some of my favorite places. I eat often at Ramen Tatsuya. I love Emmer and Rye. Chef Kevin Fink does an amazing job down there. Olame uh, with Michael Fotage, Juniper with Nick Giannis. Those those are probably my my top my top picks in Austin right now. What are the top three uh, cookbooks that inspired you the most? I would say probably the French Laundry Cookbook was probably my most inspirational book. Alain Ducasse's uh, Grand Livre de Cuisine was probably another one that was a big influence for me. And then, you know, something modern right now that I would say is influencing me is probably this Noma fermentation book. I, I, think, it's, I think it's pretty incredible. Can you give me three dishes you could not live without cooking or eating? Ooh, tacos. <laughs> I would say... I would say... What kind I, of tacos? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I love uh, pastor, uh, chicharron, and... Uh, Maybe, maybe barbacoa. I would say those are probably the tacos that I eat the most. So that's, that's probably one. Two, I, I love a, a perfect roasted chicken. Simple, delicious, 
And then three, a simple grilled fish, just a simple grilled fish with lemon. Fill in the blank depending on what the, what the time of year is. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? <laughs> I, I, I probably eat uh, a lot of nacho cheese Doritos. Probably more than I should. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I bring you a bag next time I come over. <laughs> What's the first things you do when you leave the restaurant? When I leave the restaurant, I jump in my car. I think about what audiobook or podcast that I'm listening to. And of course, flavors unknown. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I, I try to make a long drive because uh, that, that's the only alone time I have is in the car listening to something because when I'm at work, I'm chef. And when I'm at home, I'm dad. So it's the only time when I'm no one's boss. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And finally, what does Austin's restaurant scene lack or need more of today? I would say there, that we have a very strong middle to high end. I think what we need is a stronger luxury presence. So, you know, having great chefs uh, come to the city and, and, and develop a luxury concepts, I think is something that's lacking, especially when we want to be considered in, in, as a direct competitor, some primary markets like uh, New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco. I think we need, we need one or two of these very high end luxury restaurants. Okay. Thank you, Chef. I really appreciate your genuine you know, participation to uh, the podcast. I thank you very much for having reaching out to me uh, through the Flavors Unknown Instagram and to um, you know, just wave and say, hey, you know, I'm here <laughs> and I'm listening to your podcast and uh, I think that we should connect. So thank you for, for doing this. I had a tremendous experience in uh, Austin, in the Fairmont, uh, in Garrison, and I'm I'm looking forward to um, come back. In fact, very soon down to uh, to Austin and uh, and continue the exchange with you. Well, I'm looking forward to welcoming you back to Austin, and thank you for having me on the podcast. Before I let you go, two things. Number one, have you subscribed to this podcast? If you haven't, make sure you click on the subscribe button wherever you are listening to this podcast because you do not want to miss an episode. And talking about this, number two, the next episode will be with Chef David Burke from New Jersey, New York, and you do not want to miss this one. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.